Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, we're going to be returning to our study of 1 Samuel this morning, the last uh, couple weeks. So we were able to hear God's Word preached from uh, Madison Rupert. You can continue to pray for uh, Madison and his wife Pepe as they are uh, in the process of moving to Lubbock, Texas. They la left last Sunday. They're making some visits with family along the way and then uh, he'll be starting this week his new role there at Redeemer Church in Lubbock. And I hope that you were uh, blessed uh, by the preaching of God's Word by Madison. And today now we're going to return to our study of First Samuel. And so just by way of review, since it's been a couple of weeks, uh, as a reminder, 1 Samuel takes place in the days of the Judges. Uh, we read about the days of the Judges in the book of Judges. The closing passage in Judges 21-25 tells us about those days. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As you hear that statement, not only do I think does that apply to the days of the Judges, that's so often applies to our day today. You look around our world and our culture today and we very much see we live in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We have so often these reminders of the godless culture that we are in. And so we need the reminder from the Word of God, specifically from verse Samuel, because this takes place in a similar setting. This is the setting in which Samuel was born. And we need to understand Samuel's story to understand David's story, which ultimately points us to the story of Jesus. And so what we see here at the beginning of 1 Samuel and leading up to Samuel's birth is the story of Samuel's mother, Hannah who in this godless time, in this day when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, we have this picture of this mother who is walking with the Lord and trusting in the Lord. Now she's in the midst of a family that's not doing that. Uh, we read about her husband, Elkanah, uh, who Samuel's father, who after marrying Hannah and finding that Hannah was barren, uh, he goes and marries a second wife. Something that God's word never encourages, never endorses, but was accepted in his time. And so he, he marries another woman so that he might have children through her, which he does. Uh, but she, this second wife, mocks Hannah. She mocks her for not having children. And so the picture in 1 Samuel 1 is of this barren woman who's trusting the Lord. She's going to the temple. She's crying out to the Lord. She's pleading with the Lord. And she makes a vow to the Lord. That if God would give her a son, that she would commit that son to the service of the Lord at the temple of the Lord. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, God gives her a son whom she names Samuel. Uh, she takes that son after he is weaned to the temple and commits him to the Lord's service. And in today's passage, uh, we find her prayer, we find her praise, uh, committing her son to the Lord's service. This is Hannah's response to the Lord for his Provision. And so we're going to look at it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and follow through to verse 10. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, uh, if you would stand as I read the holy and inspired word of God for us this morning as we prepare to study it. And this is what God's word says. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, and there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. 
Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. If you will pray with me. Father, help us to be people this morning who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who do not stand in the path of sinners, who do not sit in the seat of scoffers. But help us, Lord, empower us through your Holy Spirit to be people who meditate on your word day and night. Root us in it, ground us in it, that we might stand in the assembly of the righteous one day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A quote that I think of often comes from a man named Patrick Morley who wrote a book called The Seven Seasons of a Man's Life. And the quote is this. He says, there is the God we want and there is a God who is. And they are not the same God. The turning point in our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and we start seeking the God who is. You think about those terms for a second, that the God we want and the God who is. Who who, who is the God we want? So often when we think about God, we we want a God who is in control, but not too much control. Uh, We want a God who offers us advice and wisdom and is always there for us, but doesn't really judge us or condemn us. We want a God who picks up when we call and answers yes when we pray. But is that the God who is? In fact, how can we know the God who is? And the answer to us comes from the revelation of God about himself. God has told us who he is through his word. But so often we live our lives more based on the God we want than the God who is. Because so often we fail to look to the word of God to rightly understand who he is. And that's why you'll find in conversations and perhaps at times you'll find yourself saying things like, Well, my God would never. Well, my God... Fill in the blank. And so often my God is followed by the God we want. But friends, we don't gather as the people of God 
to celebrate and worship the God we want. No, we gather as the people of God to celebrate and worship the God who is. And the only way to know the God who is is to look to the word that God has revealed to us about himself. And this prayer this morning that we've read, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's prayer is a prayer that focuses entirely on who God is. And so for us to better understand what God has revealed about himself, this is a wonderful passage for us to consider. Now think about what we have learned just in the short time we've been in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 so far. Now, this is the second time we've read a prayer of Hannah's. The first time in chapter 1 was when Hannah had gone to the temple and she was praying. And at that point, she was barren. She didn't have any children. She had a husband who was giving her pitiful advice and saying, well, I should be enough for you. She had her husband's second wife who was mocking her and scorning her. And the scripture tells us there in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that she was weeping, that she was distressed, that she was crying out to the Lord, this very personal prayer that God would give her a son. And she makes this vow that she will commit this son back to the Lord. And so now, as we've already discussed, these things have taken place. God has given her this child. She's raised this child for several years. She's weaned this child. And now she's presenting this child back to the Lord. Think about what you would expect to hear her pray. I think about it, if you were in this situation and God had given you this child of promise and now you're going to leave this child at the temple and you're going to trust the temple priest with your child, think about what you would pray. And perhaps your prayer would start with asking for God to protect your son. <laughs> you pray for safety for that child. You pray for the Lord to watch over them. Perhaps much of your prayer would be a prayer of thanksgiving, that God had given you this very specific request you had asked for, and you're thanking God for that. Perhaps in Hannah's situation, we would expect her now to pray for more children. After all, she had been barren without children. God's given her a child. She's given this child back to the Lord. She's going back home with no children. Perhaps we would expect her now to plead with the Lord to give her more children. After all, she's fulfilled her vow. She's done what she said she would do. And perhaps we would expect her to pray for those things. We'd expect her to pray for very specific things for herself and for her family. I mean, after all, she's prayed for the impossible, and the impossible has come to fruition. Her husband and others likely would be saying, well, my goodness, God heard your prayer there. We'll, we'll pray for this list of things now. But that's not how Hannah prays. No, her prayer here centers entirely on praising God for who he is, for his salvation, his sovereignty, and his faithfulness. In fact, as you read through this prayer, you find she never mentioned her, her son's name once, or her name, or her husband's name, but she calls on the name of the Lord Yahweh nine times and refers to the Lord over 20 times in this prayer because her prayer is entirely focused on who God is. And as such, this serves as a model for us today. In fact, we see that this is a model in Scripture for others. You may have already seen the similarities between Hannah's prayer here in 1 Samuel 2 and Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. 
Mary, raised as a young Jewish woman, would have likely known Hannah's prayer. She would have heard Hannah's prayer. And that prayer was inspired by the same Holy Spirit who was inspiring her as she was praying, as it's recorded in Luke chapter 1. And we see many parallels between these prayers because they focus entirely on who God is and on what God has done. And friends, I think we could use a lesson here. Because so often it seems that our prayers focus more on ourselves when we pray them than they do on God. And so this morning I want to challenge us to consider how we pray and how we praise God. And to consider incorporating these three things that we see in Hannah's prayer into our own lives as we praise God today, as we pray to God daily and seek Him. And the first one is this. We are reminded to praise God for his salvation. Notice there in the first three verses, Hannah says, My heart exalts in the Lord. She, she is rejoicing in the Lord. She's saying, I, I am overwhelmed. I'm rejoicing. Why? But because of the Lord. And then she says, My horn is exalted in the Lord. And that might seem a little unusual to us. That word horn in some of your translations is translated strength. Now, the picture here is of a beast holding its head high and its horns high in victory and strength. And she is essentially saying to the Lord that, that you've given me victory over my enemies and I can stand proudly before you and before others because of what you have done. Which is why she then says, my mouth derides my enemies. She's literally shouting praises over her enemies. Look what my God has done. And perhaps specifically, she's referring to her husband's other wife, Peninnah here, who's mocked her for being childless. And now she's childless no more. And ultimately, she says these things. Why? Because she says, because I rejoice in your salvation and this deliverance that God has brought to her. Now, I want us to consider for a moment that, that Hannah here doesn't refer to her salvation, but she refers to the Lord's salvation. Now you think about that for a moment. When we speak of God's saving acts, when we speak of salvation in our own lives, so often we speak about it in very personal terms. We, we speak about our salvation, our testimony. I've uh, been thinking a lot in, in recent months about my father. As you know, he passed uh, three months ago, and I've been looking through pictures, and, and one of the pictures that I came across that I just was very thankful for was a picture of my father and I years ago at a Promise Keepers event. Uh, some of you may remember these from uh, decades ago, these men's gatherings. And what was significant to me in looking at this picture is that uh, I had become a Christian as a freshman in college. And my dad became a Christian about four years later. And this picture was taken uh, about six months after my dad became a Christian. We went to this Promise Keepers event together. And it was at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And so uh, if you've got an event at Charlotte Motor Speedway and you've got a bunch of men gathered, you've got to have some type of race car driver. And so uh, I remember specifically at this, event uh, that there was a very popular and successful race car driver that was going to come and give his testimony and it was a big deal because as they were introducing him they were talking about how he had never really talked that much about his faith before and he had never given his testimony publicly before and so uh, this very uh, famous man famous all around the world he came out on the stage in front of thousands of people and, and he gave this testimony and I remember sitting there and just thinking how much I learned about him and how little I learned about God. 
Because his testimony was about him. He, he talked about his life. He talked about his struggles. He talked about his worries and his anxieties and his fears. And, and he kind of just at the end, he kind of slid the name of the Lord in there maybe once or twice. There, there was really no explanation of the gospel. There was no talk of repentance or the fruit of repentance. It was about him. And friends, if we're not careful, that's what we do as well. When we give our testimony, we talk about our salvation in very personal terms. And we see this pervading the church today. We see many sermons that don't really talk so much about God, but they talk about the pastor where you learn lots of things about the person speaking, but not so much about the text he read. It's in the songs that people write about God. It's in the songs that many sing as worship songs today. You can turn on a popular Christian radio station and I challenge you to listen to the lyrics of songs today and how often they center not on who God is, but on who we are. We have a very man-centered approach. And we're challenged when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 2 because here we don't see a man-centered approach. We see a God-centered approach as Hannah speaks of the Lord's salvation because this is how the scripture speaks of salvation. You think, for example, of what we see of Moses and the people as they're standing there at the Red Sea. You know the story. God's delivered them. They didn't deliver themselves. He's rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. And he's taking them to the promised land. And then they get to the banks of the Red Sea. And they look up and in one direction they see their enemies who are coming to destroy them or enslave them. And on the other end they see this vast ocean and they feel that they have no place to go. And left to themselves they don't. But what does God do? God delivers them. And how does Moses refer to this deliverance? Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. He attributes this salvation not to man, but to the Lord, because that's how the scripture speaks of salvation. Over and over and over again in the Psalms, we read things like in Psalm 3.8 where David says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And friends, this is how we will speak of our salvation one day. We have a picture of it in Revelation chapter 7 where the nations are now gathered before the throne. And we read in verse 9, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, why is this so important? It's just a term. It's just a word. No, but why is it so important that we understand that salvation belongs to the Lord? Friends, it is fundamental to our understanding of the gospel. Because if we do not understand that salvation belongs to the Lord, we live with this false notion that somehow we can save ourselves. The salvation is a work of God and God alone, and we are to praise him for this. And how do we learn this? We don't learn this by following our heart, or our inclinations, or our bumper stickers. We learn this by meditating on the word of God, which will challenge us. 
to consider the difference between the God we want and the God who is. I'll give you one example. You can just put this in your notes. I'll read it for us. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Listen to the God who is, the God of salvation, as revealed in God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, this is the second birth. And you and I have about as much to do with the second birth as we had to do with our first birth. I was there, but I didn't have much to do with it. And the same happens in the second birth. It is a work of the glorious sovereignty of God that we are saved. Do we have a role? Absolutely. Romans 10, if we confess that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart God raised us from the dead, God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is not a robotic process. God is the one through the power of his spirit who awakens and who calls and convicts. But we must respond. We are culpable. We are accountable. But make no mistake about it. God is the God of salvation and thank God that he is for if it were left to us to get it it would be left to us to lose it and if we could lose it we would every single moment of the day but we are to praise him for his salvation Hannah goes on there's so much here in these first three verses verse two he's holy we have spent so much time just considering the holiness, the majesty of God. He's a rock like no other. He's omniscient, verse 3. He's all-knowing. We're humbled when we consider the vastness of the knowledge of God. This is the God who is. And we are to praise Him for His salvation. And also point two, we are to praise Him for His sovereignty. And continue there in verse 4. Hannah's proud now leads us through a, a reversal of fortunes of sorts. Verse 4, the, the, the bows of the mighty are broken. The picture here is of a mighty warrior with that bow in their hand, and all of a sudden it's just snapped into, and they have no strength, they have no weapon. But the feeble bind on strength. So now the strong are weak, and the weak are strong. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. The picture here is those who had so much they never were without. And now they are desperately in need. And notice how the tables turn here. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The rich are poor and the poor are rich. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. 
I think this perhaps is more personal for Hannah because she was barren and now she has a son. And you may wonder, well, what about the seven? Well, you know, in the study of God's word, we see that word, is, uh, that, that number is a number of perfection in God's word of seven. I think what Hannah is saying here is that, that God has perfectly, perfectly provided for the one who was barren. But, but now the one who has many children, perhaps again a reference to Penina, that second wife of her husband, is, is forlorn, that, that she's weak now. So again, the strong are weak, the weak are strong. That the point of this praise seems to be what Hannah is communicating is that, that, that roles are reversed now. Those who were in need have been provided for and those who seem to be in no need now have great need. The rich are poor, the poor are rich, the weak are strong, the strong are weak. And what follows now is why that's taken place. Now, verses 6 through 8, these are spectrum passages. Spectrum passages in the Word of God are, are passages that provide us the whole spectrum. <laughs> and they show us from one end to the other that God is sovereign. For example, look at verse 6. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. So, so God is sovereign over the first breath and he's sovereign over the last breath. Now again, the God we want, we'll attribute life to him all day long. Well, we'll praise Him for life. We'll pray for life. We'll thank Him for life. But we struggle when it comes to death. The timing of death, the means of death. We, we wrestle there. He brings us down to Sheol. He raises up. A reference here of Sheol is hell raising up heaven. It's saying that God is sovereign over salvation. is sovereign over the spectrum. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor, makes rich, he brings low, and he exalts. And so he is sovereign over the poorest person on the earth, and he is sovereign over the richest person on the earth. We see the span and the spectrum of his sovereignty, how he humbles and how he exalts. And then verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princesses and inherit the seat of honor. Notice what he says, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he sets the world. Translation, he's got the whole world in his hands. And he's sovereign over all of it. And what Hannah is saying here is that the God who is, is the God who's sovereign, and we should praise him for his sovereignty. Understanding that this can be very difficult to do at times. I mean, consider Hannah's story. Hannah has experienced the spectrum of God's sovereignty. Hannah was barren. And Hannah's barrenness is specifically attributed to the Lord. Look back at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 5. Notice what you read there. Because he loved her, speaking of her husband, though the Lord had closed her womb. That there's no questioning here on Hannah's barrenness. There's no mistaking that the reason she is childless is because of the sovereign plan and the sovereign hand of God. The Lord had closed her womb. She experienced that end of the spectrum. And now we see her on the other end of this spectrum where God has now opened her womb. She's had a son. She'll have other children. She has experienced the God who does all of these things. And in that experience, we see her calling out to God on both ends of the spectrum, in her time of need and in her time of rejoicing. 
But the reality for us this morning, friends, is that it is easier for many of us to rejoice and to praise God when he gives life. But it's a struggle when he takes it away. It's easier to praise him in times of rejoicing than it is in times of suffering. But this is the God who is. He is sovereign over all things. And we are called to praise him for his sovereign plan as we see his sovereign hand at work. In point three, we are to praise God for his faithfulness. Notice again there those last two verses of this prayer. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will anoint the horn of his anointing. And so we see here a picture of God's faithfulness, that, that he is faithful to save the righteous and he is faithful to condemn the wicked. And friends, God would not be faithful if he did not do both of those things. He cannot faithfully condemn without faithfully saving. He cannot faithfully save without faithfully condemning because this is a work that the gospel demands. The scripture clearly shows us that God in creation created Adam and Eve in perfect fellowship with him. But that fellowship was broken when they disobeyed and when they sinned. And this sin affected all of creation down to you and I today. The scripture says all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. God's standard is perfection and we all fall short. And so many by their will and their might think they can overcome that gap. But what does this say? Not by man's might will he prevail. Our religious attempts, our morality, our vows will not save us and overcome that gap. The only thing that can save us is for one to live a perfect life on our behalf and for us to be covered in his righteousness. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. So that his death on the cross was in your place and in my place. And that if we will confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then that righteousness will cover our sin and we too may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And God is faithful to this promise. That's why 1 John 1.9 says he is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just. If we will confess our sins, he's faithful, he is just, forgive us of all unrighteousness, to cleanse us and make us pure. But friends, he is also faithful to give the consequence that we duly deserve for our sin if we will not repent and trust in him. And he faithfully will judge the wicked the adversary of the Lord will be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. He will judge the ends of the earth. Well, my God wouldn't do that. <laughs> well, my God is forgiving and my God, my God is not a mean judging God. My God would not do this. And perhaps you're right. Your God wouldn't. Your God, then, is not the God who is. 
And the God who is in his grace and his mercy has offered us the opportunity to repent and to believe and to trust in him and be saved. And he is faithful to do that saving work. But for many, it is hard to repent and to believe. It is hard to come to grasp with a God who is. To accept God at his word that he is sovereign and that he will save, but that he will also judge. That he is sovereign over life and over death, over your blessings and your suffering. Because what we see practically in our lives is that so often hardships harden our hearts. I've seen this a number of times. Years ago, I was sharing the gospel with a neighbor when we lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky. This goes back 15, 20 years ago. And I remember as I was sharing the gospel with my neighbor that he was very hard towards the gospel. There was this wall that went up, and the more we talked, the more he shared about his life. And he had an extremely, just horrifically terrible childhood. He couldn't even speak of the things he experienced. As soon as he'd start to speak of them, tears would just well up in his eyes. And I'll never forget him looking at me and saying, you don't know what I experienced as a child. I can never believe in a God who would allow that to happen. And these words were familiar to me because I'd heard them before. I remember one of the first people I shared the gospel with in my family it's a relative who'd been to Vietnam and who experienced horrific, awful things in Vietnam. And I remember a similar experience with him as he sat and looked at me and said, Richard, you have not seen what I've seen. I cannot believe in a God who would allow this to happen. Hardships harden our hearts. And it takes a work of God. It takes a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to peel back that hardship that we might repent and that we might believe. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that is exactly the work that the Holy Spirit does. And perhaps in this moment today, he is peeling back the hardness of your heart that you might believe and that you might trust in him. That is the work that he does and that is the work that he calls us to be a part of. We don't just look for the people who've had an easy life to share the gospel with. We go to the people who've had the greatest hardships in hopes that God, through the power of his spirit, might peel that back, that they might hope and they might believe. And what a miraculous thing it is to witness when they do. And that's exactly the story we see from the beginning of creation. And we'll see it until the fruition of all things. God is in the work of saving those whose hearts are hardened towards him. I'll leave you just with one example of that today. It happened a number of years ago. It was a young man named Augustus Toplady. And as you might imagine, he was not born in Bloomfield. <laughs> he was born in Ireland in 1740. And I'm sure you're all good students of Irish history, so you probably already know that in 1740, when he was born, there was a great famine in Ireland. Extreme cold and rainy weather and extremely poor harvest had all kind of come together. Livestock died. There was mass starvation. It's estimated that as much as 38% of Ireland's population died between 1740 and 1741 as a result of this great Irish famine. This was the context in which this child was born. 
Now imagine as a parent having a child in that situation and then imagine it gets worse because Augustus's father was a major in the military and he died in battle shortly after he was born. And so born in a famine and raised in extreme hardship by a widowed mother, he had every reason to have a hardened heart towards God and he did. He pointed his finger at God. But God peeled back the hardness of his heart when he was 16 years old. And he was walking home one day. And in a barn close to his home, he saw a group of people gathered. And as he got closer to this barn and this group of people, he realized they were gathered to hear a preacher. And as he then was a part of this crowd, he began to listen to this preacher preach, intending to pick apart everything this preacher might say. But then through the work of the Holy Spirit, God picked his heart apart. As he heard this preacher share Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, this 16-year-old Augustus, who had a hardened heart towards God, he trusted in Christ and God changed his life. He was radically converted to the Christian faith. He went on to study and become a preacher himself and write several hymns. He died of tuberculosis when he was 37 years old. But he wrote these words shortly before he died. And they're there in your worship guide this morning. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin a double cure, saved from wrath, and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. This young man who was radically converted was able to praise God for his salvation, his sovereignty, and his faithfulness. And God has used these words that many, many other believers throughout the history of the church have been able to praise God using these very same words. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take time now to praise God for his salvation, his sovereignty, and his faithfulness as we sing Rock of Ages. If you would stand together. As I pray for us and as we sing. Father God, we thank you for your saving work of the gospel. We thank you, God, for your sovereign hand. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness. And Lord, I pray as we sing these words that we would remember the great work that you have done through the gospel. And I pray as we sing them, Lord, if there's anyone gathered with us today whose heart is still hardened to the truth of the gospel, 
Lord, I pray that you would break through that hardness. That they might cry out to you. And confess Jesus as Lord. That they might believe in their heart that God that you raised him from the dead. And that they might experience this saving work. Lord, we pray that you would do this as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.